Well, this morning we launch into part two of our series called Clarity. Clarity. Clarity of what? Clarity of this is mission. We are indeed Mission Church. One of the things that um, the Lord has given us by way of clarity is this. We as a church know that we are pursuing six things. We have six pursuits here at Mission Church. We believe when we pursue these six things that the mission of God will be fulfilled. Fervent prayer, biblical preaching, passionate worship, purposeful disciple-making, courageous evangelism, and indeed, as you know, strategic church planting. One of the joys that I have um, in my role here at the church is the fact that we um, serve on mission uh, as a team. We serve on mission as a family. Uh, We serve on mission day in and day out. Um, I've served on mission day in and day out for a count them up 18 years with a man who's about to stand behind this pulpit this morning. For 18 years, when I think about Ephesians chapter 4, when I think about this man, I think about Ephesians chapter 4. And he gave apostles and prophets and evangelists shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God until we all come to mature manhood to the measure and the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine nor by human cunning by craftiness in deceitful schemes you understand what a blessing it is to have a worship pastor whose primary gift is actually a teaching gift to have a worship pastor who desires for us to be equipped in our knowledge of the Lord so we can worship him uh, with greater clarity with greater purpose I have learned so much Uh, My walk with the Lord has been strengthened. My clarity uh, for what it looks like to worship the Lord with greater passion uh, has been in no small measure due uh, to the faithfulness of uh, Pastor Brett Lovern and the work that the Lord has called him here too. So would you show your appreciation to the Lord uh, for bringing Pastor Brett uh, to us here at Mission Church? Come on. Morning, Mission Church. Morning, it's good to see you all here. Why don't you go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 4. Pastor Jerry, that was um, very kind of you to share those words with me in, uh, in like fashion. I have been greatly uh, encouraged, blessed, and my uh, walk with the Lord has been changed because of my relationship with you and um, just how you have modeled faithfulness. Uh, to me, and so many other other ways. So, uh, thank you for those kind words. Um, today, we begin the second part, as Pastor Jerry said, of our sermon series called Clarity, and uh, we are seeking clarity this morning and in this series um, on what it means to be on mission uh, for Jesus Christ. And so the first half of this series, Pastor Jerry has brought clarity from Scripture about the mission that God has called us to, and he's done a fantastic job of just unpacking in a biblical theology kind of way Jesus' great commission to his church. And he's gone through each of the statements that Jesus gave his Uh, disciples, his apostles, in carrying out this mission. And so by way of review, uh, we're going to put these on the screen, but listen, before we do that, 
uh, if the new name of our church is going to be Mission Church, then we better have crystal clarity on what the mission is. Amen? Amen. And so Pastor Jerry has helped us with that. And uh, this chart that's on the screen behind me will give us, will help us to just review those and give us clarity in that. In Matthew 16, uh, Jesus says he's the master builder of his church. In John chapter 20, he says, as my father sent me, so I send you, providing for us a model for the mission. The magnitude of the mission is revealed in Mark chapter 16, where he says, go and proclaim the gospel to, you know, just this little thing called all creation. The magnitude of the mission is massive. The method of the mission is, Matthew, is found in Matthew 28 when he says, go, baptize, and teach, making disciples. The message that makes that happen is found in Luke 24 where he says, repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name. And you think, you think to yourself, how in the world are we going to get this all done? Well, Acts chapter 1 clarifies that for us when it says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And this whole mission is then manifested in Acts chapter 2 and the rest of the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit comes. And we see this process over, happening over and over and over again. And so what I feel like Pastor Jerry has done for us is unpack uh, these texts for us and provide clarity and really lay the groundwork for, for mission church. He's really, he's really done a great job of sort of uh, th this, this series has kind of been like a Magna Carta for our church, a guiding, a guiding series, a guiding document of truths that, that really has provided a helpful foundation for us which has led us then to uh, a new purpose statement as a church, which is this. Mission Church is making disciples who are loved and sent to the glory of God. I'll read that one more time. Mission Church is making disciples who are loved and sent to the glory of God. So with our mission clarified, with our purpose clarified, the second half of this series, as Pastor Jerry said, will, will help to bring clarity to six pursuits, six things that the New Testament calls us as a church, as individuals, to be pursuing, six things that should result from the fulfillment of this mission that we are on. And so those six pursuits, again, are fervent prayer, biblical preaching, passionate worship, purposeful disciple-making, courageous evangelism, and strategic church planting. And let's just consider for a moment how these six pursuits fit into our purpose statement. Mission Church is making disciples who are loved and sent to the glory of God. The first three pursuits passionate worship, fervent prayer, biblical preaching are what we would call the loved pursuits, the you are loved pursuits. You see, uh, when, when we experience the love of God, it says God loved us first and so we love Him and others in return. And so the fact that we are loved leads us to preach His Word, leads us to passionately worship Him and come to Him in fervent prayer. 
And doing those thing that things then leads to the second three pursuits, the second group of three pursuits, which we would call the you are sent pursuits, the sent pursuits. Those things, the loved pursuits, lead us to make disciples, lead us to, to courageous evangelism. They lead us to strategically church, uh, plant churches around the world. So you can see there in, within our purpose statement and within these pursuits, you can see that worship leads to mission. You can see that being loved leads to being sent. We believe that worshiping churches are sending churches. And so how does this cycle work? God loves us. And because He loved us, then we love Him. And when we love Him, Scripture says, I was reading in John chapter 14 this morning, Jesus said, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And, and, and one of the commandments that He has called us to obey is to share God's love with other people. And when we share God's love with other people, disciples are made. Churches are planted and strengthened, and those disciples and those churches give more and more glory to the Lord. And when more and more glory to the Lord happens, as we're going to see today in John chapter 4, then He says, that's what I want to multiply. And the cycle then continues where God pours His love onto us, and then we love Him back, and in loving Him back, He sends us out to do this mission over and over and over again, and you see the cycle happening again and again and again and again. So if worship leads to sending, then being a worshiping church is going to help us to live up to our name and fulfill God's calling in our lives. And so this morning, I get the distinct privilege of talking to you guys about passionate worship. And let me tell you, Asking me to talk about passionate worship is like asking the Philly fanatic to talk about the Phillies. It's like asking Michael Jordan to talk about basketball. It's, it's like asking Bobby Flay to talk about grilling. It's like, it's like asking Chip and Joanna Gaines to talk about home remodeling. It's like asking my son Judah to talk about Clash of Clans or Minecraft. Listen, I get fired up to talk about passionate worship. I've devoted the last 20 years of my life to learning about it, to studying it, to getting better at it, and to helping to lead others to do the same. But, but the fact of the matter is, is that I have other passions too. And as I was thinking about some of the other passions that I have, uh, one particular one came to mind. And that is the passion that I have for winning. <laughs> and when I say passion, I mean passion. I love winning. The way winning makes me feel is unbelievable. And when, when I win, I just feel so strongly and I feel equally as strongly when I lose. <laughs> Can I get an amen, Ross Garrett? <laughs> the feelings associated with winning and losing are incredibly strong in me. It doesn't matter what I'm doing. 
I can be playing old maid with my daughter, <laughs> which, by the way, she totally schools me at. She's six years old, and she, her record is way better than mine at old maid, and it frustrates me. <laughs> when I play Mario Kart with my son, man, I, am, I can talk trash on that kid. Ha <laughs> ha! I beat you, which is happening less and less as he gets older and he's getting better. And I'm like, what's happening? And that makes me frustrated too when he runs me off the road or hits me with a bomb or something like that. When I play Ticket to Ride with my wife or my friends, oh, it's on. It's on. Because the feelings that I have associated with those things are so strong. But those feelings come out the most when I watch the Pittsburgh Steelers. I, I tell you, I don't get it. It's, it's mind-boggling to me how something that I have absolutely no control over and really in the grand scheme of things has no bearing on the course of my life, how when the Steelers win, I feel great about myself. <laughs> I feel like I could conquer the world. I feel like I've done something. And when they lose, man, am I in the dumps. I feel like I've failed when the Steelers lose. I feel like, ah, oh, I should have cheered harder. I should have hoped stronger. And man, I could wring a referee's neck whenever they make a bad call. Friends, can, does anybody else relate to this? <laughs> Friends, this is passion. This is what passion is, and it's not wrong. It's not wrong. God has wired us to feel strongly about certain things, and it might not be sports. It might, it might be every one of us feels strongly about something. Some of us feel strongly about music or politics. Some of us feel strongly about, about, um, about cooking or about our families or about justice. Um, there are so many things that we feel strongly about. We're all wired differently, and it's not wrong to feel strongly about these things. That's how God has wired us. When it becomes too strong, is when the feelings and the passions that we have for the things of this world exceed the passion and the feelings that we have for our God who created us. You see, God created those passions so that we could direct them to Him. He, create, he gave us those passions so that our feelings could be shown to Him in adoration and affection throughout our lives. And so when those things become out of balance, when our feelings and passions for other things exceed our feelings and passions for God, we need to rebalance those things and we need to go to God in repentance and, and make those changes. And so as we consider this idea of passionate worship, let's come at it with the understanding that we're going to be most fulfilled 
when our passion aligns with its, with its purpose, which is to express affection and adoration to God. You see, when we say passionate worship, we're not saying that we're passionate about worship itself. We're saying that we're passionate about the object of our worship. We're passionate about the God who revealed Himself to us in His Word, the God who saved us and rescued us from sin and death by sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior, to die on the cross and be our substitute so that He would experience the wrath of God instead of us. When we come to the realization of these things, that should stir passion in us that is greater than all the other passions that we experience in this life. And this passion, this truth, is fuel for the mission. This is what ignites the flame of the mission. But listen, don't take my word for it. Let's go to God's word and see what He says about it. So, so let's look at John chapter 4, which is arguably the most important New Testament passage about this idea of passionate worship. And in these verses, we're going to learn, we can learn so much about what it means to passionately worship God, but we're going to focus on three things. We're going to focus on three results of pursuing passionate worship. So if you guys are ready to jump into John chapter 4, let's say, let's go. Let's go. All right, let's do it. So John chapter 4, the first point uh, that we're going to come across is, num- is that truth opens eyes. Truth opens eyes. John 4, starting at verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, so this is near the beginning of His ministry, verse 3, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Jump to verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water at the well where Jesus was resting, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Why do Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Well, there's three main reasons, three main tensions that is pertinent to this text. Uh, There is religious tension. There's religious tension. Uh, The Samaritans intermingled worship of idols with worship of Yahweh, and the Jews didn't like it. And so they, they hated the Samaritans because of this. Uh, the, the, the Samaritans also claimed that instead of the true temple being in Jerusalem, it should be on Mount Gerizim, which was actually in view of this well that Jesus and the woman were at. And to prove their point that Mount Gerizim was the place where the temple should be built, they actually threw out everything after the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. They just ignored it. And they said, no, the true scriptures are just the first five books of Moses, which to a Jew who loved the words of of the prophets and the Psalms and all of the other writings of of the Old Testament, that would have been blasphemy to them. So there's religious tension. So these Samaritans actually do build a temple on Mount Gerizim, But then the political tension arises when uh, a Jewish king named John Hyrcanus in 128 B.C. comes and he completely destroys that temple. And so that 
rises up this political tension that the Samaritans and the Jews feel toward one another. And then the third tension is racial tension because the Samaritans had intermarried with Gentiles in the history of of the nation of uh, Israel. And so the Jews thought of the Samaritans as half-breeds. So in the midst of these tensions, and, and in addition, the fact that a Jewish rabbi would be speaking to a woman in this culture is also remarkable. So what Jesus is doing here is he is breaking down incredible cultural barriers and going against them for a very important purpose. So John 4, uh, ver- jump up to verse 16. Uh, Jesus says to this woman, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. She's trying to pull one over on him. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Put yourself in that woman's shoes. Awkward. But she realizes that that Jesus has some knowledge that was given to him by, by God. And so she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. So I'm going to go ahead and change the subject right now. I'd rather talk about something else than to talk about my sinful past. Thank you very much. So she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So this woman starts out asking questions about the truth of worship. She says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. So she's trying to figure out the truth about where worship occurs. And surely, I mean, she knows that Jesus is a Jew, so surely she's expecting a verbal rebuke from him. She's expecting him to just come at her and say, lady, you got this all wrong right? But that's not what Jesus does. In verse 21, he says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. He says to her, where you worship isn't important. It's not about a physical location. Theologian J.I. Packer says uh, that this statement reveals the worldwide availability of God. But he says how you worship is important, and he says who you worship is important. 
And then he addresses the truth issue that she's asking about, the truth, the issue with truth that these Samaritans had gotten wrong. She says, he, he says, you worship, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. So let's talk about the Samaritans for a moment. The Samaritans got it wrong. They didn't have the truth. He's saying, Jesus is saying there that, that the Samaritans worshiped without knowledge. They were worshiping falsely. But let me tell you, they were doing it with all their heart. They were doing it with all their passion. They were doing it with all of their spirit, so much so that they completely disregarded most of the Old Testament and built a temple on a mountain that was false. They had zeal without knowledge. They had spirit, but they didn't have the truth. And so before we get too hard on the Samaritans, let's just think about this idea in our own lives. Like, has anybody in this place ever made a bad emotional decision? Yes. Right? I remember uh, one Christmas, I was, I was, uh, it was Christmas Eve, uh, my grandmother came to pick me up uh, to take me to her house to go open some gifts, and I was so fired up about getting my Christmas gifts. I got out of the car, I ran into the house, and I just started ripping, wrapping paper off of every gift I could find. She comes in the house and says, those aren't your gifts. You're in trouble. And I cried. I was sad. My emotion went kind of like from winning to losing, right? That was like, like the feelings that I was feeling in that moment. That was a bad emotional decision. Uh, any parents in the room ever emotionally parent their children? That's a bad day for them especially. How about road rage? I'm touching some hot points here. You're meddling now, Pastor Brett. Hey, listen, all we have to do is look in the newspaper for countless examples of bad emotional decision-making, right? So we're in the same boat. We can be in the same boat as these Samaritans. But Jesus tells this woman that our spirit and our passion must be accompanied by a recognition of the truth. The truth will help to guide our emotions. He, he says in verse 23, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He says we need both. So what's the truth side of the equation for us? What, is the, what are the truths that we need to believe? I believe that we can kind of boil it down to three things. There's tons of, you know, scriptures, a, a big, the Bible is a big book, so there's a lot of things to believe. But I think what, what will be helpful to us to get some handles on this is three things. Number one, we need to believe the truth about who God is. If you're taking notes, write that, write that down. Number one, truth that we need to believe about 
who God is. We need, to, we need to trust in who He is. We need to believe that He's an almighty, sovereign God. And, 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 and the truth about who He is, I think that we could boil down very simplistically to two things. Number one, He is holy. There is no one like our God. He's set apart from all of creation because He's the only thing that is uncreated. He created everything else. And so all of creation then owes honor to Him and needs to recognize that secondly, He's worthy of our adoration, our worship, our obedience. That's recognizing who our God is. The second thing we need to recognize is uh, what He has done for us. We recognize who He is, and then we recognize the truth about what He has done for us. And the bottom line of that is the gospel. It's Jesus. He sent His Son to be our Savior. Jesus took our sins upon Himself so that we could worship God. And so, friends, man, I was just caught up in the worship this morning because we were singing about Jesus this morning. And, and if we ever go a Sunday without singing about the work or the person of Jesus Christ, I want you to come to me and I want you to say, Pastor Brett, you missed it today. That is what grounds our worship. We should never get tired of singing and rejoicing in and exalting the name of Jesus Christ. He is the one that we're here to worship. He's the one who did the work to make it possible for us to worship in an acceptable way. But there's a third thing that we need to believe in terms of the truth that Jesus is speaking of here, and I think it's how we live in response to who God is and what He's done, how we live. You see, worship doesn't just happen in this room, in this place, at this time. Worship is a 24-7 experience that all of us are engaged in. We are created to worship God, and so no matter what we're doing, we're worshiping something, but that worship should always be directed toward the Lord. And how does that work when we're not in this place? It works by obedient living. It works when we become the disciples of God, that of Jesus that, that He calls us to and that we live for Christ. We're characterized by the divine virtues of the fruit of the Spirit. We, are, we order our households properly as husbands and wives and, and children in our homes. We love and appreciate the role of the church, and we understand our giftedness and, and participate with those gifts in the work of ministry inside and outside the church. We fight for peace and unity in the church. We exhibit a fruitful witness in the community and we lead responsible, sober, and accountable lives that will bring glory to God. Friends, these are the three things that we, that we need to know and believe. Who God is, what He has done, and how He expects us to live in light of those things. And when we understand that truth, that's one part of the equation of passionate 
worship. And so, as I, as I talk about these things this morning, I don't know where you're at. I don't know where each person in this room is feeling or experiencing those realities in, in, in your life. But if, 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 if you're sensing a, a, some conviction from God saying, yeah, I, I'm, I'm missing it on this thing or that thing, here's some suggestions for you. Number one, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Take time to get into God's Word. And, and listen, maybe, maybe it's just starting super small. And uh, on, on my phone, I have uh, what's called the U version of the app, the Bible app. And every day they send a, uh, a verse of the day. And let me tell you, that verse of the day is really good every day. Start there and get in God's Word and meditate on it, and, and that will fill your mind with the truth of God. Maybe you, want, maybe you could read a book about the attributes of God or about the work that Jesus has done for us. If you uh, have questions about that, come forward this morning and ask a leader or ask somebody in your life, like, what's a good book that I, that I could read? And, and then maybe you know what you need to know, but you need some accountability to fulfill it. And so talk to a trusted friend about the teaching of Christ and how that friend can hold you accountable to living the way that God has called you to live. Friends, our eyes have to be open to the truth of God, or our worship is going to fall either into emotional frenzy like the Samaritans, or it's going to cease altogether because there's no fuel for it. There's, no, there's nothing to rejoice in. There's nothing to glory in. And so some of us in this room might really have the truth part down really well, but if it stops there, then we're cutting worship off at the knees. Truth, it, it, our worship cannot stop at truth opening our eyes. Passionate worship also needs to result in point number two, which is spirit-changed lives. Now, I know that it says spirit changes lives there. I just changed my mind on that. Uh, it needs to be spirit-changed lives. Spirit-changed lives. Verse 22, he's again clarifying this truth with the woman at the well, and he says, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's saying the Jews got it right. The Jews uh, got the truth right. They know what to do, and they're doing it. They're worshiping in Jerusalem like the Scriptures say they should. But did you ever do something and not understand why you're doing it? Did you, did you ever do something and you know it's the right thing to do, but you're kind of like, eh, I don't really care about this? Listen, this happened with the Jews pretty often. And one stark example of it we find in Malachi uh, chapter 1, the Lord is actually rebuking the priests in Malachi chapter 1, and He uses some incredibly strong language to rebuke them because they were doing all the right things, but they didn't care. They didn't feel anything for it. Matthew 1, uh, Malachi 1.13 says, but you say, this is Malachi speaking on behalf of the Lord, he says, speaking to the priests, but you say, what a weariness this is. 
about the sacrifices that they're giving, and you snort at it. Ugh. Says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this is what you bring as your offering. Shall I accept from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. These priests who had the privilege and the honor of going into the temple to to sacrifice in the presence of their Creator scoffed at it. This is so boring. This is so lame. Why do we have to do this? They were doing the right things with no heart with no spirit behind it. So how do we avoid those kinds of attitudes that would cause our worship to be a stench to God? Well, Jesus says we must worship in spirit and truth. And I think spirit has two meanings. The first meaning meaning is that we need to worship in the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God needs to be a part of our worship because in verse 23, he says, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What Jesus, when Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here, he's communicating a new reality to this woman. He's saying that access to God and worship of God will no longer be found at a place. It's no longer going to be bound by a certain location, but it's going to happen through a person, namely himself. Namely, Jesus himself is going to be the one by whom we worship God. So when we, as New Testament believers, embrace Jesus as our Savior and Lord, we receive the Holy Spirit of God into our lives. And friends, we are living in that hour that Jesus talked of. We are living today in the time of the church where the Spirit indwells each believer who makes our worship acceptable to the living God. But it's not just the Spirit of God that Jesus is speaking of here. It's not just the capital S, Spirit of God, that He's referring to. The translators got it right when they made that word a lowercase s in the translation because the context of this passage, passage reveals that He's talking about our passions and our emotions toward our God. And we see this in verse 21 and verse 24. He says that neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And then he says, God is spirit, and so we must worship Him in spirit and in truth. What is he saying in those statements? Well, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem just basically takes it out of a physical location. It's not a material thing. And when when Jesus is saying that God is spirit... He's saying that He's not a physical being. He's not something that we can grab onto and hold onto. It's not, our worship is not primarily or first physical. It's a heart thing. It's an emotion thing. It's a passion thing. 
that then results in outward manifestation. So, if you look at the contrast between the Jews and Samaritans, this becomes very apparent. Jesus says that the Samaritans needed to add some truth to their very spirited worship. But the Jews had the truth part down, but didn't have necessarily the firm grasp on the spirit side. And so the Jews need to be careful not to let that turn into lifeless ritual like it had in in the book of Malachi that doesn't affect people's hearts or their feelings toward God. And I think that I, I know myself, and I think that that happens to me sometimes in church. And I think it might be true for some, some of us in this room as well. You know, we do things. We come to church and we, we experience like this amazing presence of God as we fellowship with one another, as we sing, as we hear God's Word. And we're like, whoa, that was awesome. We need to do that again. And so we do it again and again. And then we do it again. And then we do it again. And it can become a tradition for us. And then what might happen as the tradition carries on is we start to forget why we started the tradition in the first place. And our feelings, our passion about it begins to fade. Maybe it happens in a short amount of time. Maybe it happens over generations. But when our passion for it fades, then we just become indifferent to it. And then sometimes it can even lead to contempt. Ugh, why are we doing this? just like the priests in Malachi chapter 1. So I'm not saying that tradition is a bad thing. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that our traditions, the things that we do, we need to make sure that they remain meaningful. We need to continue to, to, to explain, this is why we do this. This is, this is what this is meant to uh, help us with so that we don't get to the point where we just kind of sit there and yawn and, eh, yeah, we got to go sing again, I guess. I guess this is what we're supposed to do. So God's Word says, you know, meet together, so all right. Like, that's not the attitude that we want to have when we come together. Listen, if the truths of God have grown cold in your heart, you don't feel anything inside when you hear God's truth, when you sing God's truth, when you read God's truth, just some things off the top of my head that I, that I thought might help us. Number one, remember. Remember the work that God has done in your own life. When, when I'm feeling that way, I go back to the days when I, when I, when I first believed I think about the testimonies that I've, that I've heard 
from other people. I think about the works of God that He's done in my own life over the years, and, and it stirs up passion because I know that He's still doing what only He can do. Secondly, you might want to ask God to reveal to you. Pray. Ask God to reveal the significance or the relevance of, of what you hear to your life. Maybe you want to take time to meditate on a scripture like 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 3, that says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's rejoicing in this work of the gospel that's been done in, her life, in his life, but he goes on and he says, Rejoice in, in the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Do you realize that when you go to heaven, there's great treasure there that's awaiting you, and it'll never fade, it'll never grow old. It's being kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. God is guarding you by faith. He's protecting you. Maybe we don't even realize it. And in these things we can rejoice though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. What is Peter saying? He's saying that go back and remember these glorious truths that have changed our lives. Even though right now things might be difficult, we can still have joy. We can still worship. We can still rejoice because God has done an unbelievably incredible work in our lives. Those truths stir up our spirits in incredible ways. And this idea of spirit and truth worship, I think, is, is captured really well in this quote by John Piper. He's talking about Jonathan Edwards, who is a Puritan scholar and pastor. And he says this, Jonathan Edwards, who knew God's reality with his head and passionately felt God's reality in the love of his heart, is right when he says... God glorifies Himself towards the creatures also in two ways. Number one, by appearing to their understanding. And number two, in communicating Himself to their hearts. And in their rejoicing and delighting in and enjoying the manifestations which He makes of Himself. God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but also by His glories being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, but both by the understanding and by the heart. It's spirit and truth. And, and Piper goes on to say, once you see this, that the work of the heart, the emotions, is as important for reflecting the glory of God as the work of the head, understanding is, then you will begin to see why music and singing is so important for Christian worship. Friends, that is why we sing. Because it helps us to combine our thoughts and our emotions. It helps us to worship in spirit and in truth. So when you sing, sing with your mind. Think on what you're saying and what's coming out of your mouth. And let that affect your heart. Then sing with all of your heart to the Lord. 
And, don't, and if that produces some sort of physical response in you of raising hands or smiling or closing your eyes or crying or dancing or jumping up and shouting or whatever it might be, don't let what other people think of you hinder you in that. What you should be thinking about in that moment is what does God think of me? The fear of man hinders us so in our worship. And God, I think, is calling us out of that because I believe it's when passion for God's truth rises in our hearts that lives begin to change. You think about mind, emotion, and will. So if we just communicate a truth to you, how much is that going to change the way that you live? It might, it might change depending on your personality or depending on how strongly you receive that truth. It might make you change a little bit. But when your passions get engaged with that truth, man, you will run through a wall for God because your mind and your emotions are engaged and then your will changes and you will change the way that you live according to how God is calling you to do it. So when we fully embrace the passionate worship of the living God, when truth opens our eyes and our spirits are engaged and lives begin to change, then listen, point three, this is what happens. This is the result. The mission multiplies. Truth opens eyes, spirit changes lives, and mission multiplies. Mission multiplies. Friends, passionate worship is fuel for the mission. And we see this in this passage. After Jesus clarifies this idea of worship with the woman, she again changes the subject, but this time because her heart has been affected. She reveals that she's awaiting the hope of salvation. She's saying, I'm really hoping that, that the Messiah will come. She, she, she must have felt something, so she becomes vulnerable to Jesus. And, and she says, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Jesus walks right through the open door. And this is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus openly declares that He's the Messiah. Which is amazing that He's openly declaring. This is the only time in the Gospels that we see Him declaring this to a Samaritan woman. So here we see that a conversation about worship is part of the process of bringing a woman to faith in Jesus. And what's the first thing she does after the conversation? She goes on mission. She runs back to town, and verse 39 says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. Those who believed said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. One conversation about worship 
changes a woman's life. Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah to her. She bends her knee to him. The first thing she does is she goes out on mission. She declares the testimony of what Jesus has done in her own life to everybody in the whole town. The whole town comes to Christ and believes and is saved because of this woman going out on mission. And it reminds me of what happened in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah sees the holiness of God in this worship moment that he experiences. And he realizes his own sinfulness, sinfulness and says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And then God in his grace comes and touches his lips with the coal, with the coal signifying that he has been cleansed of his sins. And, and, and then God says, who will go for me? And Isaiah is the first one to step up and say, here am I, send me. You see, in Isaiah's life in the Old Testament, worship led to sending. Worship led to mission. And the same thing happens with this Samaritan woman. Worship leads to sending. And the same thing happens in Acts chapter 13 when we see Saul and Barnabas, who, Saul who became Paul, uh, are worshiping and fasting with the other leaders of the church at Antioch. And, and, they, and they, in that spirit and truth worship, the Holy Spirit looks down and says, I'm setting apart Saul and Barnabas for the work to which I have called them. In their time of worship, that led to the greatest missionary movement that we know of that started the spread of the gospel into all places in the earth. Friends, I believe that the worship of Saul and Barnabas and the church in Antioch was worship in spirit and in truth, and God is seeking that kind of worship. And He looked down on it, and He saw it, and He said, that is what I want to multiply. That is what I'm seeking. And that's what every person on this earth should get to experience. And so just as Saul and Barnabas were set apart as ministers of the gospel to go change the world for Jesus Christ, friends, I don't know about you, but I want that to happen at Mission Church. I want us, and I know our elders want us to be a sending church, a church that experiences the love of God and that then we express that love of God back to Him. And as He does that, as we do that, then He looks down and He says, I'm setting apart you and I'm setting apart you to go out into the mission field to take the gospel to the nations, to make disciples, to plant churches. And I want to multiply the spirit of worship that's in this place and take it out so that my glory will be multiplied. Are you guys in on that? Is that what you want to see? I know I want to see that, but it's not going to happen if spirit and truth is not the character of our worship. Let's get fired up about the Word of God. Let's get fired up about what Jesus has done for us. And as we worship Him in that spirit and that truth, He's going to send us out to make a difference in all creation. Let's stand in prayer. God, we, 
we just pray this morning that, that your word would help us and move us forward to be the church, to, be, to live up to the name Mission Church, God. Lord, would you multiply the mission as we worship you in this place in spirit and in truth. Would you move us from the comforts of this place to go into all the world to make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and and teaching them to observe all that you have commanded by the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, God. Would you multiply what you see in this place? Would Would you raise up our passion for you as we seek to go deeper into the truths of God in our own lives? Lord, do your work in us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.